0: the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches
1: Hello and joining you this week from Soyer in Mallorca, where since my comments about Belgians in our Archive podcast at the weekend, I've faced more hostility from people in black belts than another Daniel LaRusso had to contend with at the 1984 All-Valley Karate Championship. My name is Daniel Friber. I'm the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast, in which we'll reflect further on the men's Tour of Flanders at the weekend, evaluate whether Bernard Hinault did once call Pyro Bay a bullshit race. And ponder other urban myths, such as the one stating that Le Blaireau, the Badger, only rode the hell of the north on one occasion and won it. Helping me to do that today is a gentleman known on the podcast as the supreme arbiter in the high court of cycling podcast Bullshit. He is currently partway through a farewell tour proceeding about as briskly as DSM's riders on the Cortecaire in Flanders the other day this rate, he'll be telling us just one more classic Loire-Atlantique in March 2038, having just seen Tadej Pogacar win his 18th milan san remo He's the owner of the finest main scene in Marseille since Chris Waddle was strutting his stuff at the Stade Velodrome in the 1990s. It's François Tommaso. Welcome back, François.
2: Nice to be with you guys. Um,
1: also with us today, and he gets a short intro as per a new policy to try and tighten things up around here. It is the John Crease to my Terry Silver. Lionel Burnie, I should say apologies to anyone not familiar with the Karate Kid films or Cobra Kai TV series at this point. They've been on my my mind since Sunday just because the moment when Pog rode onto the Oda Quarremont reminded me of the mythical crane kick scene in Karate Kid. And I I did actually tweet a gif of that. Um, Apologies to anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about. This also applies to the last 10 years of the Cycling Podcast.
3: Lionel, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm talking to you from my beautiful Airbnb right in the centre of Ghent. Had a lovely couple of days off here enjoying, well, the sunshine yesterday was glorious. Still very cold, though. It doesn't feel like spring has quite sprung in terms of the, the temperature and uh, yeah all cold and expensive you yeah me, it is <laughs> you were it, telling me a few minutes ago Flanders has really transformed in the 20 odd years I've been coming here you know it, it does feel like a very wealthy city Ghent these days uh it's very big student population as well but breakfast was quite punchy yesterday morning I'll, I'll win that back by betting on the winner of Paris-Roubaix at the weekend just on a couple of things I wanted to pick you up on there Daniel first of all oh go on uh, what do you use to hold your trousers up if you've got such an aversion to the Belgian style of belt wearing what do you just,
1: use I've, we've talked about this before on the podcast we've just we have talked about just how prominently they wear their belts I don't know if one can wear a belt prominently but they're always um, they're always very much sort of on show and sparkling and I feel like they're right in your face I don't know They um, <laughs> they seems to be more discreetly better concealed in other parts of Europe A belt should be, should a belt be concealed? I don't know. What would the fashionistas say?
3: I have no idea, no idea. And the other thing about uh, Francois's uh, global farewell tour, more dates than Elton John at the moment, I think, isn't it, on the (laughs) farewell tour? But I'm actually on Emmanuel Macron's side. Raise the retirement age in France so Francois can do another few years, you know? How old are you, Francois?
2: I'll be 62 next week, actually.
1: Francois, famously, famously, you're the same age as uh, Christian Prudhomme, aren't you? Are you the same age?
2: He's a bit older than I am. I think six months. <laughs> which
1: which raises the question. I've never heard anyone talk about the looming prospect of him retiring. And I've certainly never heard him talking about it. Have you?
2: I don't think he considers uh, retiring. I mean, I think Jean-Marie Leblanc left uh, the Tour de France uh, kind of past the, uh, you know, legal retirement age. Same with Félix Léviton. Uh and my impression. Jacques Godet, definitely. <laughs> Jacques Godet, definitely. He spent, you know, he almost died on the race. Christian never talked about it. Uh, we're going to lose someone, well, probably little known by the general public, but who's an important guy for us. That's Philippe Sud, who's been the uh, head of communication and the press, uh, the head of the press department for many, many years, nearly 40 years now. Philippe, Philippe is, is retiring, maybe not this Tour de France, but. He probably won't do the next very close to Christian but I mean in France you're not forced to take your to retire at 62 you, you can go on until you you know all the time as much as you want I really can't see Christian retiring um, in the next couple of years I think he'll go on until at least he's 65 66 67 as long as he's fit enough to do it
1: talking of people bowing out leaving cycling should we start with this week's news roundup the first item jumbo supermarkets the title sponsor of the world's number one men's team jumbo visma confirmed to dutch television network nos last week that they will cease to be the main sponsor of the team from the end of 2024 the group also sponsors women's team of course They have a speed skating team and you'll also see their logo on the library of F1 world champion Max Verstappen. A company spokesperson told NOS the decision was part of a reassessment of their sponsorship activities, equally the death in December of Jumbo founder Carol van Eert and allegations of money laundering against his son and company CEO. The CEO until September, that was, uh, Fritz van Eerd, have apparently contributed to the decision. The team general manager, Richard Pluger, says he's not at all worried about the future of the team. We should remind you as well that several riders on the team have contracts that run to way beyond 2024. For example, Wout van Aerts, he's committed until the end of 2026. Chaps, um, any thoughts on this? There doesn't seem to be a great deal of panic emanating from Jumbo visa at this point. I was quite surprised to... Learn and read about the extent of the some of the co sponsors' uh, commitments. Um, Visma already put in a lot of money, they're a Norwegian company, of course, but it may be a case of someone stepping up. Or, um, it's certainly uh, certainly an attractive proposition, aren't they? Um, if a company is looking to sponsor a cycling team,
2: if the, the which is now the team which is now a uh, Jumbo Visma. That you know fails to find a, a, a leading sponsor in the next couple of years, then cycling is even more in trouble than we thought. <laughs> so I, no, to be honest, I, I don't think there'll be a problem for them to find a, a, a main sponsor. I haven't heard any any rumors or names or anything. Maybe some, one of the you know, secondary sponsors will step up uh, a bit, I don't know. But no, I d I, I don't see I don't see it as a problem at all for them. I've
1: heard rumours. I have heard I mentioned Visma. I have heard rumours of them getting into bed at some point with Uno X, the Norwegian team. We of course had the Uno X chief Jens Haugland on a few weeks ago
3: I mean it's been a bad week for Jumbo Visma, hasn't it? They haven't won a race for six days. So I mean pretty, <laughs> pretty desperate times for them. we talked about uh francois drawn out
1: retirement the same could be said about alejandro valverde 42 year old of course officially quit road racing at the end of 2022 but this week movistar officially unveiled valverde as the headline act in their gravel team um and ivan cortina and anna diana and hayley simmons as other members components thereof of that gravel team Valverde will ride his first race on April 23rd, La Indomable, in the province of Almería.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit unfair to see all these uh, retiring uh, road cycling going into gravel because they're going to compete against real amateurs like uh, Ian Boswell or Mitch Docker. <laughs> it's unfair. <laughs> We just don't want them getting into podcasting. We don't mind former (laughs) bike riders
1: getting into gravel racing. We just don't want any more in podcasting, please. Another return to racing that I thought we should salute is Michael Valgrens, the former Amstel Gold winner, suffered a horrendous crash at the Route Occitanie last June, sustaining a fractured pelvis, ruptured ACL, MCL, meniscus in his kneecap, or in his knee, sorry. There was so much pessimism about him quickly regaining full fitness that his team, EF Education Easy Post, registered him with their development team, EF Nippo, for 2023. Now, the story has not a happy ending just yet, but certainly taken a turn for the better with Valgren taking his place in EF's main team at the Pays de la Loire Tour, formerly the Circuit de la Sarthe, this week. The first stage of that was won by Brian Coquard, with Valgren finishing safely in the peloton. Um, I've got a question about this, Francois. Is that name change? Is that new? Is that the first year that it's not been the Circuit de la Sarthe?
2: I think it was Circuit de la Sarthe until last year. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not saying I, I you know, keep a uh, keen interest on the Circuit de la Sarthe because usually it clashes with more important events. But I think it was still called Circuit de la Sarthe two years ago. I'm sure. I I'm, I I couldn't be definite about last year, but I, yeah, I think probably
1: maybe something to do with the fact that no one knows where La Sarte is
2: <laughs> well.
1: internationally. Possibly. Well, no,
2: because you've got the, the, the 24 hours of Le Mans are on the Circuit de la Sarthe, so people should know it. it's not far from Le Mans.
1: <laughs> I think you're overestimating people's geographical knowledge. Anyway, <laughs> a few other bits of racing to catch. Oh, no, sorry, I should mention, as far as stage races are concerned, the biggest stage race happening this week is, of course, the Tour of the Basque Country. Two stages down there so far, and they've been won by Ethan Hayter of INEOS and Ida Skelling of Bora Hansgrohe. Much more on that race in next week's episode. A few other bits of racing to catch up on, dot the eyes on. We recorded last week before Dvaz d'Or, Vlondren. That was won by Christophe Laporte of Jumbo Visma, extending their clean sweep up to that point of all Belgian classics and semi-classics, with the exception of the Panna. We also had the Route Adélie, which is where, François?
2: No idea. <laughs> in, I, do I, I can tell you, oh, yeah. Well, it was
3: one of the very first international races I covered, actually, back in 1999. The the, the route, Adélie in Vitry, the Linda McCartney team rode, and all I remember about it is that a rider from Team Chicky World won. Can't remember the name. I'd have to look it up. But <laughs> and uh, the, the the Linda McCartney team leader on that day, you know, there was a debate about whether or not he followed director sportif sean yates instructions when they reached the finishing circuit yates wasn't terribly happy with him at the finish and suggested that he ride back to the hotel which was only sort of 10 15 kilometers away unfortunately the rider whose name escapes me right at the moment he was a he was a german rider uh, he rode in the wrong direction for about sort of 40 50k and uh, rode you know and then obviously had to you know, ask his way back to find the hotel. Couldn't remember the name of the hotel. Only had a vague idea where it was. And Hold that thought.
1: Hold that thought about riders riding in the wrong direction. We'll come back to something related to that in a minute. And, Go on. and he
3: arrived, you know, at dinner time, sort of 8.30, you know, 9 o'clock. Pretty cold, uh, quite tired. His sort of 200-kilometre day out had become almost 300 kilometres. Great training. Great training for him. And, chaps, with the magic of the internet, I have uh, remembered that his name was Heiko Son. German rider who rode for the Linda McCartney team in 99 but yeah that's my Route Adderley story for my farewell tour whenever it may be what a magnificent story it was um and this year's race was won by
1: frederick dversness of uno x norwegian rider at the weekend there were two other men's one day races of note the volta limburg which was won by caden Groves, interestingly not in a bunch gallop but a two-man sprint about um, against maxim van hills and then the jeep GP Miguel Indurain, where Jon Izaguirre triumphed for the second time in his career. That chap's talking of what races used to be called, I was curious to know how long that had been going. It actually predates Miguel Indurain's career, used to be called the GP Comunidad Foral, um, but still took place in, in sort of Indurain country. Chaps, question for you to finish the news roundup this week. Which country this year will have two men's national road race champions and two national road race champions jerseys in races? Do you know? This relates to something that happened last week.
3: No idea. European nation? South American. Oh.
1: Last week, about 10 days ago or last week, it was the Argentine national road race championships and they descended into a complete farce. They took place in Mendota in Argentina and... There was traffic all over the course, and the commissaires took the decision midway through the race to close what was supposed to be the finishing circuit or to take it out of the race. However, some of the riders had not got the message. So you had, and I've seen videos of this, the quite ludicrous, again, farcical spectacle of riders arriving at what they thought was the finish line from two different directions and raising, and two different riders raising their arms as they crossed what they thought was the finish line. And those two riders were Alejandro Duran and Sergio Fredes. And both, the commissaires decided, would be crowned Argentine national champions. The Mendoza federation and race organizer has now been suspended so appalling were the con- conditions in which the race was ridden and um, yeah and everyone in argentine cycling including my colleague uh, marcelo from espn cycling in argentina he is the foremost argentine cycling correspondent working on races Um they're all very embarrassed by
3: what occurred last week we ought to be careful. I mean, somebody will listen to this and think there's a great new race format to be tried, you know, kind of cy- cycling orienteering. You start at one point and you finish at the second point, but how you get there is up to you. This reminds me, am I right in thinking that something very similar happened in 1949 at Paris-Roubaix? Two different winners because Cerca Coppi and André Mahé, is that right? They, did they um, reach the velodrome from different? directions or was there some kind of confusion Am I, have i completely got this wrong
2: that's about right yeah but i think copy was actually uh, awarded the uh, the the title in the end but uh, yeah we'll we'd have to check that
3: tune in next week <laughs> <laughs> Officially two winners of that year's race. We'll look it up. When we talk about Paris-Roubaix later on, we'll we'll have a definitive answer to that. Um, One other big news story, Daniel, that um, we should mention is that the women's tour in the United Kingdom is taking a year's break because of a lack of funding obviously a race that really blazed a trail founded in 2014 by the sweet spot organization who are also behind the tour of britain the men's race i mean eight editions have been held it took a break because of covid of course in 2020 but disappointing news really for women's cycling for british cycling it is a hiatus they hope to be back in 2024 but they've been very open about the the fact that it is down to financial issues of course a race that relies on not only sponsorship but also the um, the investment and the support of local authorities in Britain to put the race on and we were talking a bit earlier about sort of financial headwinds economic headwinds I mean Britain is facing economic headwinds in the public sector for sure that will no doubt be having an impact but no race this year hopefully it will be back next year and we will look into this more uh, it will cover it very well i'm sure in the cycling podcast feminines next episode um but the other thing is you know that there is a kind of a, a a groundswell of opinion that says that the tour de france fam has kind of eclipsed the women's tour a little bit i mean the the, the call for a women's tour de france completely understandable and uh, isn't uh, you know a direct consequence but it is a shame that as the tour de france fam comes along and kind of elevates the profile of women's cycling on a on a bigger platform one of the races that helped kind of lift it up there in the first place and really supported women's cycling you know introduced um, equal prize money for the women's and men's races is disappointing that, that somebody isn't able to sort of step in and see the benefit and the bonus of sponsoring or supporting that race. So hopefully that will be back next year.
2: I couldn't help thinking that, uh, you know, I've, I've known the ASO very well for many years. They don't like, as you know, competition too much. And they probably don't like an event that's called the Women's Tour, and they've got their own Tour Femme. I think both races had an official car maker involved at Skoda, I mean, it, maybe it's a kind of a conspiracy theory on my part, but I wouldn't be surprised if some guys at ASO put pressure on Skoda, saying you can't sponsor two women's tour. But you know, th- this is—I I have no—but th- that was my first reaction when I when I read that. That uh, I'm not saying a, there was a direct involvement by ASO to, to, to you know create difficulties for the women's tour, but I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be entirely surprised if that was the case.
1: Yeah, and race organisers are very precious about their names. And for example, why is even even within their own kind of portfolio of races, you know, why is the Tour of Lombardy no longer called Giro de Lombardia? Well, the Giro wanted to create a different kind of prestige around the word Giro, and they didn't want any other race to be called the Giro. Okay, you know, with ASO, we've seen them extend this tour denomination. For example, the Tour de Yorkshire to lots of other races besides the Tour de France. But that would not surprise me. What you're saying, um, Francois, that their noses would have been put out of joint slightly, just purely by the appellation of the women's tour. My
2: suspicion rose from the time when I was trying to organise the start of the Giro in, in Marseille, and uh, in the same year as, as uh, the tour was starting from Nice, and I know there was a direct intervention from uh, ASO for that not to happen. So, so yeah, I mean, there, there, it's, it's, it would be the kind of practice they, they have to kind of curb the the opposition, I think, but you know, no, no proof of what what I'm saying. Second point, I wanted to raise quickly uh, <laughs> is to have my my quick Dave, David Godieu moment because you mentioned the Tour of the Basque Country and you mentioned troublesome race finish. I mean, uh, David godu complained after the first stage of the Tour of the Basque Country, finished third. That the the, the finale was all downhill and it was uh, dangerous. I mean, it gave me the impression this year David Godieu has been involved in 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 a few quite a few. Uh, rows and disputes and debates and his it's, it's, it's character seems to be changing or maybe he's, he's always been like that but he, he was given the impression he was kind of a withdrawn, discreet, polite young man and is you know, greatly involved in we were it.
1: Gonna, I thought we were going to get onto the subject of David Gaudu possibly making, it, well, making a surprise appearance at uh, Paris-Roubaix and wading into and, and str- striding into a picket line and throwing punches at Sandy at Paris-Roubaix at the weekend. That
2: that's a, could be a transition because uh, he, he's kind of he's Breton, of course, and he seems to be evolving his characters he's gradually. I mean, he's far from it. Mean, gradually into a, a kind of a badger mode. So we'll see. Kudu has <laughs> <laughs> gone full badger. <laughs>
0: the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport
3: Biosensor. The
0: SuperSapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros.
3: Thank you very much to SuperSapiens, our title sponsors. If you want to find out more about the SuperSapiens system of continuous glucose monitoring, go to supersapiens.com. They aim to make the lack of energy a thing of the past because with the Super Sapien system, you can visualize in real time what moves your glucose levels and learn to keep it stable so that you can avoid running out of energy at crucial times or lacking focus when you need to be really switched on, running the battery down till you're completely exhausted or just avoid something as inconvenient as a post-lunch crash, which I know is something that affected me quite badly in the past if i had a particularly bready lunch so i avoid bread at lunchtime and it irons out those spikes in my glucose level and then the almost inevitable crash that follows it to find out more go to supersapiens.com and it's thanks to super sapiens that we've been able to Introduce the Arrivé series, covering the biggest of the classics over the spring series. Listen out to Arrivé from both Women's Paris-Roubaix on Saturday and Men's Paris-Roubaix on Sunday. And of course, another of our big supporters is you, our listeners, our friends of the podcast, who have subscribed to listen to our special episodes. Now, my Milan San Remo episode, which I recorded a few weeks ago, will be out in the run-up to the Giro, we've decided now, just as a sort of an appetizer before the cycling podcast embraces all things Italian in May for the Giro d'Italia. There is a big archive of episodes on the Friend of the Podcast feed, more than 80 episodes, plus, of course, Kilometre Zero the full archive from when we started Kilometer Zero up to 2019 and well this week we in fact added an episode from the archive because listener Tony Orme signed up as a friend of the podcast and was disappointed to see that our Lunch with Colin Sturgis episode from 2018 was not on the feed so well I've added it for Tony and anyone else who wants to listen it was me in conversation with Colin Sturgis former world professional pursuit champion of course and a pro Rider back in the late 80s and early 90s. Really interesting story tackling the highs and lows of life on and off the bike. That's on the feed now. Lunch with Colin Sturgis is actually a two parter. And if you want to sign up as a friend of the podcast, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and follow the link.
1: Well, chaps, we're speaking on Wednesday, still mid come down after the Tour of Flanders at the weekend. Lionel and I, of course, Discussed uh, the generation of Tour of Flanders in our Arrivé podcast at the weekend. Francois, you weren't with us. Now, Francois, from the height of my, I don't know, 22 years of experience, not as nearly as many as you um, covering professional cycling, a few weeks ago after, I think it was the Ruta del Sol, I said that Tadej Pogacar, I already said that Tadej Pogacar was by far the best and most exciting bike rider I had ever seen up until... The route Del Sol. Um, obviously, that's been reaffirmed by events of the last three or four weeks. Um, watching Tour of Flanders at the weekend, did a similar thought cross your mind? And this, we're getting to Badger territory now. We finished part one talking about Bernard Hinault, Le Blaireau, the Badger. And we're getting into that territory.
2: Where do you put Pog at this point? I've been in the, in the sport a long time, as you know. <laughs> but uh, really, I find cycling for the past you know, a few seasons has been the, the, the most exciting time in cycling I've ever seen, actually. Because, of course, we have Pog, who's up there, I think, with, you know, Merckx and these guys. I mean, he's already, I mean, if he stopped now, his palmarès is already absolutely impressive. But he said so himself, you know, he, he could stop his season and, and, and still declare is had a good season. But, but he's not alone. I mean, and, and that's what makes it almost as exciting as the times of, uh, you know, uh, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic in, in, in tennis. It's very rare in the history of a sport that you have so many exciting talents around. Of course, the other being much van der Poel, uh, Remco, Ivanopoulos, even, even Wood van Arts, and well, possibly Jonas Vingegaard. I'm more uh, dubious about that, but never mind. In my many decades uh, covering cycling, I very rarely see. Uh, I've really, really seen that you know that that kind of uh, strength in the field, strong personalities, entertaining cycling being uh, performed in front of uh, our eyes. And for me, really, uh, of all the names I mentioned, could be a debate with Remco Evenepoel. But I mean, so far, Pog, as we say, and, and Remco have kind of avoided that. Uh, you know. Direct confrontation at the highest level, for me, Tadej Pogačar is 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 is, is a, you know a step above the rest and uh, is really just a remarkable athlete and 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 cyclist and his versatility in a way is a kind of uh, I wouldn't say because I, I I won't you know I won't dare going on 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 this terrain but it's a kind of being so versatile and so good at different types of cycling is kind of uh, proves this is regardless of the suspicions that might be uh, 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 around his performances because there's there's always a suspicion unfortunately in 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 our sports but his ability to handle his bike and to ride it you know in a clever fashion and in an exciting swashbuckling fashion on different kind of kinds of terrain to me you know, is is a point in the right direction in terms of suspicion. Like, like you 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 need more than just the right products to 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 do what Tali Pogacar is doing. So yeah, I'm really really impressed, and is probably the most exciting uh, bike rider I've seen in action since uh, yeah the 90s.
1: Before we talk, we're going to talk about this monument. This five monument question. The monument. A Grand Slam or or clean sweep. Francois, we've talked in the past. Lionel and I, we've talked about the aesthetics of Pog and the style as well as the substance as well. And we also talked to the weekend about his. The the fuel source for Pog has seemed to be this joy, this insouciance, this um, this sort of relish for riding his bike and doing different kinds of races, and that's transmitted in the kind of aesthetics of the way he rides as well, the way he looks when he's attacking and when he's out of the saddle. I mean, just talk a bit, a little bit about what he gives off to you um, as an observer of the sport and the the
2: brand of panache that he brings. I've said that before on the pod that you you need to. To be basically an asshole <laughs> to to win Grand Tours. I mean that w- there was a rule in the past, you know. Uh, Murks uh, was not a nice guy on the bike. Uh, Eno was never a nice guy on the bike. Uh, well, the famous Texan was not a nice guy on the bike. Uh, I mean, all all these Grand Tour winners, you know, were in a way. You had to be tough. You had to be rough guys. You had you have to have no mercy. Tadej Pogacar is probably as merciless as, as them, you know. is kind of a new cannibal, but but it, but he's, he's enjoying the meal, you know. <laughs> and that's the difference. <laughs> he's enjoying the meal and he's tipping the waiter and the rest Absolutely. of the staff as well. It's great elegance. I, I think elegance is a, is a, is a, an important word for me in uh, in cycling. We we love you know gentlemen. We love we, we 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 love our cobles and uh, that kind of elegance, I, even the way he holds himself, if, even the way he walks, and 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 his, his his politeness in interviews, his 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 you know his constant smile, and his, his kind of a yeah childish approach to the uh, to to the sport, you know, reminding us you know all the time that it's it's only a game in a way. That's really refreshing and really interesting. So yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm kind of a fan. I mean, of all once again of all the guys I mentioned, if if you got in, in a sprint like where the Milan Sanremo, if you have the f- the four big guys, uh, you know, together, I will always be happy if if uh, you know Tare beats Woods and uh, Mathieu and the rest. I think it's it's more uh, even Pitcock. I think it's is more yeah, it's it's more exciting. It's more it's nicer, you know, and then we love nice guys, don't we?
3: You mentioned the style, Daniel. I mean he's not he, there's a sort of power to his elegance though isn't there it's not soupless in the kind of the you know he doesn't sort of float along it, to me he's kind of like i don't know a, a ballet dancer in hiking boots you know that combination of you know stomping on the pedals but with a with a kind of lightness of touch like you say when he gets out of the saddle he does he does Get off the seat lightly, and and he sort of does dance away. But you could definitely hear the footsteps. There's an electricity, to yeah. it and
1: There's a sense of movement. I mean, I always think that we've talked endlessly, Francois, about uh, Thibaut Pinot. I always think the aesthetics of Thibaut Pinot on a bike are, are key to his appeal as well. There is, you, know, you use the word swashbuckling, and that's a difficult word to define. But um, he has, he gives off a a, a violence as well when he a violence but an elegance at the same time and i think Pogaccio has the same there are some football
2: players i i i i love the, in the way they play i mean i'll come back to the point uh because when they when they they, they run and when they Get into uh, uh, the you know the rival defense. Their hips don't don't seem to move like like they're gliding through. And uh, Tadej Pogacar gives the same impression of gliding. He's not gliding. You can, I mean, you can tell his legs are are doing the job. But but the impression he gives, you know, is kind of a you know it the, the, the kind of gliding forward. Icebreaker maybe uh, impression he gives. And the, the Tour Flanders finale. I mean, the, this this you know man to man fight with Mathieu Van der Poel is not you know. <laughs> I mean, it's much Van Der Poel, you know? Talk about power and talk about genes. You could see when the pedals were rolling, you know, and the TV going from one guy to the other. I mean, they, they were both exceptional rouleurs, as we say, but there was a little, just a little class above from Tadej Pogacar. That was impressive, really impressive. I said we'd
1: talk about this big question that's been posed since the weekend, the five-monument question. Will Tadej Pogacar go on to win all five monuments he currently has three has two tours of lombardy and he has one tour of flanders now and one liege baston liege of course he's going to have the opportunity to win another liege in a couple of weeks hasn't won milan san Remo, hasn't won paris-roubaix now he was asked about this immediately after the race after the tour of flanders at the weekend is roubaix something you're thinking of is it a possibility and he quipped that he would need to put on a bit more weight now chaps first thing i want to ask you francois is this whole Monument question Is that bullshit? Um, because we, I think we have discussed this on the podcast before. The whole concept of a monument is a new um, contrivance in professional s- cycling punditry. And the monuments were not really something that would necessarily. Grouped together as, as I said before, in the same way that uh grand, the Grand Slam of tennis is, or the majors in golf. This is a, a relatively new invention, and therefore, should we even care, Francois?
2: you have to start somewhere you know for for a long time you were well if you mentioned grand slam in rugby you know, for many years the french were not uh, even considered as uh, real members of the five nations and then italy came in and so the grand slam now means winning five matches instead so so these things evolve. evolved same with the tennis grand slam uh, for for a long time australia was seen as a, as a, a little bit minor compared to the other uh, major tournaments so so there's a, there's always a time when uh, you know th- those things start and i think these monuments kind of establish themselves as m- being the monuments and and what's interesting about it is that the 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 these the, the, kind of cycling grand slam is it might be the, mo- m- the most difficult to achieve from all the other sports i, I mentioned so far uh, very very few uh, riders have done it and and i think it's almost impossible to do so it 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 raises the bar uh, you know, a li- uh, even higher, like 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 kind of uh, of cycling. If, if you add you know grand tours to the to the equation, the, you you go down to what two riders <laughs> maybe who've done it. That's what sport is about. They create this kind of uh, unofficial trophies. That that's another thing I like about Tadej Pogacar. You can tell he cares about the the history of cycling, and you can t- you, usually guys tell you, oh, I don't care about history. Uh, I'll think about it at the end of my career and blah blah blah. That that's not at all what P- Pogacar said. You know, he's aware that 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 there are records to break, that that that, that there is history to be made, uh, and he's aware as well that is part of, part of the fun of cycling. So,
4: I don't think it's irrelevant, and I, I, and I don't think it's irrelevant. You know, when we mention that pogachar himself, because uh, of all the guys, you know, who might be doing this. Uh, one of these days is is at the moment the guys who's the closer to to achieve that. But like in tennis, uh, in tennis, you know, you you can win Wimbledon, you can win the U.S. Open, you can win the Australian. I mean, th- that there's a type of player that that can do that easily. In cycling, in the, maybe Roubaix is kind of the French Open. You know, it's like it's it's a different. It's like like clay and cobbles being kind of the same sort of uh, turf. Uh, so so is Roubaix the most difficult to win for a a, 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 a versatile uh, rather, this, that's not what Pogacar said. He said it's Milan-San Remo, which, which sounded very strange because because he did pretty well in Milan-San Remo in the past. So the, the question is, which one is going to be the most difficult for Pogacar to win now? I guess it's probably Roubaix still, you know.
3: Well, Milan-San Remo, you, you 40 potential winners, isn't there? You know, loads of people could win it. And there are very few opportunities. Whereas for paris he the first thing to do is he has to put himself in the conversation and get into uh, a group because really Roubaix boils down to a lot of luck the, the timing of, of moves um, his type of riding he's proved that he can open a gap on the climbs and then hold that gap on the flat it, that he wouldn't have the opportunity to get away on a climb in Paris-Roubaix of course but if he could get his nose in front then there's the possibility uh, that his type of riding would put him in the position to to win a Paris-Roubaix and also he's got a very fast finish so you know even if he came to the velodrome with with company I mean we're speculating and looking years ahead here we don't anticipate him riding on Sunday despite what some sort of mischief making rumour mongers might be trying to suggest uh, to me over a beer last night.
1: Subsequently yeah subsequent to what you just told me before we started recording Lionel about rumours of Pog maybe leaving the door ajar for prayer rebate the weekend. I have just messaged someone on his team um, to ask for confirmation of that. Of that, <laughs> that.
3: Well, the ru- the rumour emanated from uh, someone who came very close to winning all five monuments, but, but came one short. And that one short was Milan San Remo. So you can narrow down who the ruler um, came from. Well, that's Philip Gilbert. <laughs> <point. So> that's <laughs> Philip Schilbert.
1: Um, that, do you know what? I was thinking about Philip Gilbert and when people started talking about this clean sweep of the five monuments. Philip Gilbert. it was extraordinary that he got to four. And what's almost most extraordinary about that is the one that he did not win is the one that I would have predicted that he would win in the first years of his career. Because for a few years before he'd won any monuments, he attacked on the Poggio um, every year. And he looked as though that it was well, it was a foregone conclusion that at some point he would win Milan San Remo, and he never did. Also about Philippe Gilbert, just looking at his Palmares, the thing that most astonishes me about Philippe Gilbert's Palmares is he won Amstel Gold four times. I realised at the weekend, um, which is you know Amstel Gold, it's not it's not the the race that I hold in highest esteem, but it's a very difficult race to win. Um, Pog is going to ride. I'm still gold, isn't he? But he's not going to ride Well On. But that's an interesting one, well on. That is a race that he hasn't got on with so far. Um, it may... Who knows? He may have more difficulty in the same vein as Gilbert and Sam Raimo, Have more difficulty winning Well on than he does paris um, But there, there are a few interesting benchmarks here, aren't there? Though? There's the question of the five monuments. The three riders have done that. Rick Van Loy, Roger de Vlaeminck, Eddie Merckx. And then this one of... Um, the Grand Slam, you said there, Francois, the Grand Slam of Grand Tours, so all three Grand Tours plus the Grand Slam of Monuments. I mean, what would that be? The ultimate slam, um, doing the two Grand Slams, and only one rider has done that. And you can probably guess who that rider is. Eddie
4: Merckx. Yeah, I mean, the comparison with, with, with tennis I made, I heard about Roubaix. You know, that had to become less specific with the years because because of, of, of the lot of guys who come from mountain biking and know how to handle the bike better. Also, the equipment uh, is said to have changed and kind of leveled the field. But that, that's what you hear. But it's never materialized in the results uh, of the race. So Sony maybe Sonic gray but apart from that, it's it's been mainly specialists in a way one will, will be thus far. Pogacar is obviously not a specialist, but I mean, we, we've seen guys like know you mentioned it, or uh, Francesco Moser, or other guys who were not maybe designed or built for they managed to win it. Big question mark there.
1: There were a couple of other talking points from Flanders that we maybe didn't spend enough time on at the weekend line or, or we didn't fully realise the implications of. The, inf- the now infamous Filip Maciejuk, um, that was the Polish Bahrain victorious rider. His Well, he didn't crash. Um, He swerved. He was riding off the road in, uh, I think, a cycle lane that turned into grass. And then he went through a puddle and swerved back into the peloton, causing several riders to crash, including Ben Turner, who broke his elbow again, I think. And Tim Wellens broke a collarbone. There were other riders who sustained injuries. And the UCI have said that there may be further action taken against Matsuyuk. He was disqualified from the race immediately we talked about how he apologized immediately as well on Twitter I'm just uh, there was some doubts confusion about whether this rule that was brought in a few years ago about riding on cycle pass off the race route whether it's still applied I I did check the UCI regulations and it is there still in black and white 7.6 on uh, UCI regulations: use of sidewalks, pavements, paths, or cycle lanes that do not form part of the route. Um, rider will be fined 200 to 1,000 Swiss francs and docked 25 points from UCI rankings. I don't know about this, chaps. I mean, Lionel, We. Well, I was relatively sympathetic of much of your. I mean, it comes down to a question: do you punish the action or the consequences? The consequences were very grave. In this situation, in the sense that he, it has cost several riders a large chunk of their season. However, if we were punishing solely the action, then we would have to punish a lot of riders in a lot of these Belgian races that go unpunished.
3: I mean, what do we what do we think? Well, I mean, I think it's one of those ones where it is sort of justice ad vitæs, isn't it? Because you know riders have been uh, punished for using the sidewalk uh, the the cycle lanes i mean it's a it's a huge issue here because of course there are so many cycle lanes and they run very close to the roads in lots of places and then you know they veer off to go round a roundabout say or and as we've seen you know sometimes they do come to a bit of an abrupt halt or a change of direction or and so that's when we see the riders bunny hopping back onto the route or, or veering back into a peloton which has every right to use the full width of uh, the road that forms part of the race course the thing is that, that we often see these incidents perhaps at a less critical point in the race or um, you know a, fa- a very famous rider might do it applying that rule you know rigorously by which i mean you know um, well people are fined if they're spotted. But in the case of a you know a disqualification, clearly the consequences have been punished uh, because they were so severe. Um, but it, it does highlight the importance, as I said in OEVA, the importance of that rule and, and why it exists. It does exist for the broader safety of the peloton. If you can eradicate the riders using the cycle path, then it reduces dramatically this kind of incident happening. And so, yes, while clearly um, Masiouk didn't, intend to bring down so many riders and and cause broken bones of course he didn't it's not quite the same as just a racing incident where perhaps a misjudgment coming into a roundabout or a a traffic island or whatever you know there's there is degrees of uh, of crash and and this was a kind of an egregious one because it was uh, caused by somebody not observing the rules of the race And so the UCI, who were quite quick to make a decision about Kristen Faulkner wearing the continuous glucose monitor in Strada Bianca, and then the chain grease moment for Wout van Aert, which technically is against the rules, but the commissaire decided that, you know, no advantage was gained, so no no punishment. And then we have this situation, um, and you imagine the UCI may well take further action. I don't know, Uh, uh, we don't know at this stage, but it wouldn't be a surprise. so yeah, I suppose to answer your question, Daniel, it, the the consequences um, do lead one to think that perhaps the the, the punishment, um, for want of a better word, uh, uh, does need to be a, a bit more se- severe in order to just reinforce why that rule exists and that if it if it goes wrong, the consequences will be severe.
2: You've got the the letter, and you've got the uh, and you got the uh, the the rule, the strict rule, and. Um, uh i, I mean I, the 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 culprit in this case was the poodle he, could, he couldn't you know he, he couldn't foresee the, the, the because it was a surprise when you see the the, the images what he's doing is okay maybe not uh, entirely legal, but it, it looks harmless enough until all of a sudden finds himself, you know, in in the in the, in the middle of this poodle and, and 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 just doesn't know what what to do. But I mean, it could have been a stone, it could have been anything. Can you imagine Garen Thomas in that situation? I mean, <laughs> I, I remember you remember the famous uh, Lance Armstrong, Yoseba Bellocchi incident in Gap on the Tour de France yes, when when yes. when, uh, when uh, uh, Armstrong cut through the field, you know, to uh, actually there was already a discussion at the time. That that he hadn't gone through the, the actual roots of the race and it should have been... And had actually taken a genuine yeah, shortcut. to take a shortcut. So was it legal? Was it acceptable? Well, obviously at the time, uh, you know, Armstrong being, being what Armstrong was, I mean, there, there was... I would have loved to see Jean Marie Leblanc <laughs> try
1: and kick him out for,
2: for that.
1: I mean, they didn't
2: kick him out for much more egregious things. That's right, but, than, but, but, than but, going but the I remember corner. at the time that I mean, there, there was a discussion in the press room about that. I mean, that normally, you know, it, it, well, of course, the reasons why he took a shortcut was were, uh, you know, not not of his own making. But in the same time, you know, so so I, I think that the, the, this rule uh, must be left to the appreciation of the commissaires. That's the only thing I can say about it.
3: But Francois, you may remember with that Armstrong Bilocchi incident, it was descending down into Gap, wasn't it? And, uh, you know, again, uh, I think you'll probably remember better than I, but there was quite a discussion between, you know, Johan Brunel and the team. Uh, he was the team manager and, you know, the, the commissaire, the, the Tour de France, to. to to basically state their case that Armstrong was taking evasive action and if he hadn't done he could have crashed into Bellocchi and of course the consequences of that crash for Bellocchi were serious and Armstrong you know had no real choice but to to dive across the field and then get back onto the course at the earliest opportunity I mean yeah you're right the application of the rule on that occasion I mean they should have I mean what's happened to Lance Armstrong's tour wins I mean definitely strip him of the 2003 one just for that alone (laughs) Another talking point that got
1: people in a froth... Uh, at the weekend after the Tour of Flanders. Uh, one of the DSM riders who was seemed to be sort of orchestrating things, John Degenkolb, their most experienced classics rider, um, he defended himself and the team afterwards. He said, we looked to our positioning going into the key moments of the race, tried to control the speed, just as Trek Segafredo did in De vazdorf It was also a chance for us to try and save some energy for later and then also try to play our cards. Um, now, chaps, I've been playing away, listening to another podcast, I listened to Garen Thomas and... Luke Rowe's podcast. Luke Rowe was one of the riders who talked to Degenkolb as they were going into the quarter care and he understood that Degenkolb was going to, they were going to sort of take their foot off the gas a little bit but not go this slow. Um, Garant Thomas called it filthy tactics um, and he said Degenkolb, I think this was slightly sarcastic, I mean, he was being slightly um, scurrilous, um, facetious but he said Degenkolb should be banned but this is something that we have seen in the past, Alessandro Ballan, a former Tour of Flanders winner, he did a video just last week talking about how this tactic had been employed quite often by Belgian teams in the past. Um, thoughts, chaps? I mean, I quite like this sort of, this kind of inventive, not I will not say dirty tricks, but, you know, DSM, a lot of people pointed to the fact that they then didn't go on to have anyone in the top 15 or top 20 and therefore it had failed but DSM were not a team that could really harbour any great hopes of winning the race or finishing on the podium so they have to find other ways and means to do it and all's was fair in love and war really um, within reason. I mean it's
3: something you see in stage races all the time isn't it when You know, maybe they come from a big road into a narrower road and perhaps there's a break that's got, you know, quite a narrow advantage. Just You know, in the phase of the race where the break is being established, you'll often see the teams who want that break to go away and think, well, that will do us. As it comes onto a narrower road or when there's an opportunity to do so, they'll mass at the front and then just ease the speed down a bit and then that's it. Um, We've heard riders complaining before, you know, about not being able to get past in order to try and join the break or even incidents where a rider perhaps on the second or third row has shouted, you know, let me pass because I want to join that break and the team that's on the front will let that rider go, but no more. I mean, you know, using the road for tactical reasons is part of cycling. Again, it's a bit of a grey area. The Tour of Flanders is not a stage race. It's not...
1: We never hear people grousing about echelons do we Oh, you went to the you you put it in the gutter
3: it was windy that's unfair that's true yeah i suppose you know it boils down to what extent do the riders have for the safety of the riders behind them and i suppose a bit like any rule of the road you know it's it's up to the riders who are behind to notice if there's a ripple coming back and and to to if the speed is slowing down or speeding up, it's up to them to be alert and aware. But I do Lionel, understand what oh. does every team what every. does
1: every team and every rider say in their interviews before every tour of Flanders,
2: you have be to be at, at the up front. front. Yeah.
3: Well, DSM were DSM were at the front, going well, they, really yeah.
2: slowly. The thing I can't understand is what they were trying to do, actually. Why they did it at that moment in in the race. So, okay, Degnenkov said we were saving our energy. Well, okay, but what what for? I mean, I, I think that the surprise, as you say, uh, Daniel, it, it's been done many times in the past. But the, 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 maybe the surprise came from the younger generation that it's so used. With races being being raced full gas all the, from start to finish as they say that all of a sudden a change in pace uh, looks new to them when when it's actually not. I mean, if you want one, uh, if you want a break, as you said, Lionel, to go away. I mean, if you have if you have a rider in the in the front of uh, uh, in the break and you're chasing, you know, you take. I mean, it is very common. You take a turn, you slow down the peloton so that the break can go. I mean, it's it's it's, a, it's, it's and often that, that that's the kind of tactics that works. My only surprise with that dsm tactics is, is that um, I, i'm i don't quite understand what 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 the plan was you know what 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 why they were doing that
1: franco for example i i'm not sure and this may be one reason why van der poort reacted to it that, you know i mm, pointed out in our Arive podcast that there was the first occasion early in the race where he was called out he was caught behind and there was another occasion and it was around about this in the race it was between sort of 110 to go and, 100, and maybe 70 to go so it was a key phase of the race and he was he was you know he was behind he was in 30th 40th 50th position and I don't know whether they were maliciously targeting him and they wanted to get him dropped or force him into
2: a chase but it may well have worked. I'm not really convinced about the move itself. When Bora and Gr- on in a Giro attacked from very far and and destroyed the field, I mean it was seen as as new and interesting. But it worked. You see what I mean. So w- when a move is not successful, it's it's like when you try to create a an national and it, and, it, and it doesn't work. Sometimes it it looks stupid you know so that there was a little bit, <laughs> it's a bit
1: it's, it, it reminds me a little bit it's a little bit like french pension reform but we'll come on to discuss that in the third part i think
3: ready for a spring break to remember amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew with share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60 percent. the more who travel the more you save skip the hassle of driving through the northeast while exploring dc philly new york and boston no middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Saving start with three travelers, eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Well chaps, we are going to be talking about pyru Bay in this part. And just as a matter of good housekeeping, I mentioned at the start of the show... One of the great, probably the greatest urban myth in professional cycling, alongside the notion that Iban Mayo became a long-distance lorry driver, he did not. That was Isidro Nozal, for anyone who cares or knows. Um, the other great urban myth is that Bernardino rode and won Paris-Roubaix once. He only rode it once. Francois, this is total bullshit, isn't it?
3: Hang on. I thought the myth was that he he, he won Sorry. it and then declared he would never ride it again and then didn't. Uh, neither, neither myth is true. Well, do you know
1: what he did? Do you know? What I think is true. It is true. He did say it's a bullshit race. A bullshit. This is. I'm being slightly liberal with the translation here. He said it was un uh, merde. A shit race. A bullshit race.
2: I think that that's the reason why he decided to win it, you know. And and once again, I mean, he also he also raced on the pavés in in the stages to Lille on the tour. I mean, he, he hated the pavés. I mean, it's more the cobbles that he hated than than, than Paris Roubaix itself. As we know, that when the badger decided to win something and to fight against something, he hated. I mean, that that's that's, that's what I was saying about Tadej Pogatra, the different approach to winning. Races, Pogacar is is winning for fun, and uh, and the badger was winning races out of uh, I don't know hate or you know almost or anger. I mean that, that his 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 engine was uh, what drove him was kind of anger, you know, and uh, and that's that's totally different from from Pogachar so uh, anyway his, 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 his Roubaix victory was uh, was impressive like like most of his classics victory uh, victories it, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like Roger Federer winning the French Open to, to keep the tennis uh, you know he only did, did once because he hated it but obviously talking about the the uh, you know his, his Liege uh, victory in, in the snow was was, was probably his best uh, classics victory.
3: I mean, impressive record, actually, Daniel. I mean, he was 13th on his first attempt as a new professional in 1978, albeit seven minutes down. Then uh, he rode it every year between 78 and 82. Uh, he was 11th in 79, 4th in 1980. His victory, of course, came in 1981 in the rainbow jersey. Uh, impressive because he outsprinted Roger de Vlaeminck and Francesco Moser at the finish. And then he did ride it the following year. Uh, so he didn't sort of down his Paris-Roubaix tools. He rode it every ran... bloody year. He loved it. He loved it. <laughs> Until 82. <laughs> his favourite yeah. race. And he was ninth <laughs> on his final appearance at Paris-Roubaix. And uh, yeah, they didn't ride it after that. So I suppose there is some some merit to the, to the suggestion that he, he sort of downed tools
1: well you know famous for his panache as I think alluded to earlier in the podcast famous for, his, for being very pugnacious throwing punches at French strikers in it was paris wasn't it the the strike um, where they rode into a strike um, now Francois this brings us to the weekend and the context in which paris will take place in France listeners may have been following the news in France there have been riots there have been what you call in France manifest manifestation um, and it's all to do with pensions. Um, not the sexiest topic. Tell us what's been going on and is there any chance of this affecting proceedings at the weekend?
2: I mean we the, the legal age to retire in France is uh, just now 62 so I'll be 62 as I said ne- next.
1: Are they calling this la loi, de, la loi François-Thomas? <laughs> well I, I, I'll François-Thomas. be 60 next
2: week so I, I, I'm entitled to retire uh, which I'm not uh, doing entirely because uh, you're entitled to retire but uh, actually if you do uh, your pension is not very high, so you you kind of uh, you know pushed towards uh, a later age because the, the 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 older you 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 retire the, the the more money you make. So the very few people actually retire at the age of 62. But anyway, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, decided. I mean, it's he was very you know intent on passing a law, pushing back the age of uh, retiring at, at 64. In the past, in in his first uh, mandate, uh, he he, he tried to have another law about retirement pass uh, in in accordance with some of the trade unions. This time, he decided to go straight against the the trade unions. So there's been strikes and demonstrations uh, weekly or almost twice uh, a week for the past uh, two months. Uh, in France, and it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's it's been a little bit uh, rough and violent. The the thing was that the, the trade unions were in their you know were playing their role like you know so big demonstrations, uh, days, uh, strikes to 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 protest and uh, against law, and the law passed in in parliament recently. But the the problem was, and that's you know that kind of stirred uh, even more. Uh, resentment from the unions and from the the, the workers and, and, and the majority of French, actually the polls show that 75% of the French are against that bill. And the way it passed in Parliament was not by vote. Uh, th- there, is a, a, there is a little quirk in the, in the French law that, that, that allows the government to pass a law without a vote in parliament it's called 49.3 and i'm sure you'll see 49.3 that's the, that's the bill name on the roads of paris-roubaix 49.3 is the the, the kind of will be the know,
1: predicted uh, average speed of the winner of Tade pogacar when he when he appears miraculously in compiegne on sunday morning
2: so yeah the uh, the 49.3 amendment is 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 a little trick a little legal trick that that allowed, that, that Let's governments impose a law without votes. So it, it really incensed the opinion, like, you know, oh, they're not, you know, they're cowards. That they, they, they didn't go to the vote because they knew they would fail. And so, yeah, there's lots of tension. There's lots of social tension in France at the moment. I, I know that there has been quite a bit of it in, in Britain as well uh, in recent months. And as we know, uh, cycling races have all, often been the stages of uh, social protests. So, uh, Roubaix, socially, If it's known for one thing in France, besides the
1: bike race, it's often known for topping the league tables of things like, unfortunately, unemployment, crime. What is the situation in that part of the world, in that part of France? Do you know?
2: Crime there, you know, they play in the minor league compared to Marseille. But uh, it used to be, you know, Roubaix was famous for textile uh, industry, and and I mean, most of the of the plants there uh, closed. So yeah, you have a record number of, uh, you know, a record rate of unemployment. It's quite a quite a miserable. Miserable area. It's a working class. I mean, all, almost all the uh, the, the parcours from Compiegne. Well, Compiegne is very posh, but but then wh- as soon as you get into the uh, Eau de France, what is wh- as it's called now, Upper France, which is actually not <laughs> true in terms of in social terms, uh, you 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 enter territory of the uh, mining industry, steel industry. And, and textile industry and Ruby was a you know was really uh, at the core of the textile industry in the nineteenth and twentieth uh, um, century. So yeah, I mean there's a tradition of of trade unionism in in these parts. There's a tradition of protests, most of the time peaceful protests, but it can be spectacular. But most of the time, uh, there's there's also other you know social problems like in Denain, There's a, there's a big company in, in Denain that's uh, uh, it's, it's it just happened like uh, a week ago, so there might be another element of you know possible trouble. But I don't think uh, that there will be trouble, t- t- to be honest, in uh, at the weekend.
1: This is the most quintessentially French thing the cycling podcast has ever done in 10 years <laughs> of history. Spend a whole part talking about French strikes and trade unions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, you, and then I, there probably I, won't I, be I, any.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, because as you know, it's it's always it's often impacted the uh, uh cycling races in France and I mean both are part of the French cultural tradition. But and but and Paris Roubaix being such a part of the northern uh tradition in France. I think the, the, the as 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 anybody who's been on Paris Roubaix waiting at Cafour de l'Arbre, or you know at the at the cobbled sections with the crowds, I mean people there most mostly working class, they're very proud to, and the you know the the, the weekend of Paris Roubaix is is a moment of you know communion, joy, excitement, and and so it's part of the same culture. So I I don't think if, in spite of the of the anger and the discontent from you know the unions and the workers, I don't think they they'll, they'll disrupt uh, Paris Roubaix uh, like stopping the race. They might ask ASO to you know to that banners can be shown and and posters can be hurled. Uh, uh, and and um, and they they might even you know have a little speech or a little message to you know to to convey uh, through TV or whatever. Uh, it, it was already the case. I mean, the the social unrest was already happening during Paris. And 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 Paris. I mean, you were there, Danielle. Uh, before you know, before the finish uh, on the finish line, you all often had a little a small demonstration coming uh, in front, you know for, so for the TV to 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 film and 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 pictures to be to be made. But I mean those. The demonstrations were taking place like a year, uh, an hour before the finish, so we might have these kind of things. I I really don't think the kind of violent demonstrations we had in France are in the big cities, and they usually the unrest doesn't come from the unions. It, it's, it's usually bunches of uh, young people called the black bloc, who in my opinion don't have any interest in cycling whatsoever and probably don't even know Paris Roubaix exists. So. Uh, I'm not too worried about Sunday.
1: Well, Lionel will be there on Sunday with his placard and his mates from the Black Blocks. Um, Lionel, you've uh, you've been a spectator at Pirbay Bay on numerous occasions.
3: Um, you, mm, what's your plan for Sunday? Oh, not sure. I'll be with Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally over the weekend. They're coming over to make an episode of Service Course, and Lizzie will be on the Arrivee on Saturday night covering the women's race uh my plan usually i i always say well we get asked a lot how do how do you watch the classics and i always say you know make a clear plan to see the race in you know a really good place once or twice rather than trying to do too much it has become harder over recent years to do the kind of cobble hopping that i did the very first time i came in 99 we saw it several times including at Arenberg but my experience at Arenberg in was it last year or the the October year? I think it was the October year. Just the crowds there were so huge. Getting there and parking up and watching the race was was absolutely fine, but getting away again really ate into the time that I had. I still I still did make it to the finish. Uh, from Arenberg, but it did rule out uh, seeing them uh, 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 in between Arenberg and the finish. But over the years, favorites, Carrefour de Lava is a great place to go and watch a really good, you're, you're guaranteed to see the race really on because it's about 26 kilometers from the finish. One of the last sectors, a really hard sector. Um, but equally, just going to the velodrome and enjoying the atmosphere building up over the afternoon and watching on the big screen is, is electrifying as well. So you really can't go wrong. I'll make up our plan for Saturday and Sunday on Friday night, I guess. And, uh, well, you'll hear all about it in a future episode. I think we're going to make a friend special as well about the weekend. Excellent. Um,
1: just talking of, you mentioned Aremberg there. Apparently, the, a herd of 40 goats have been... Uh, unleashed upon the Arenberg forest to graze and eat the grass there because it's been quite a rough few months weather-wise and there's been a lot of grass growing there. Um, nothing to do with Thibaut Pino those goats, I don't think. But um, I don't know what the weather forecast is like at the weekend, chaps. I mean, the race, you know, we don't have to speculate too much on the race. We know the, we know the cast of characters, uh, Van Art Van Der Poel, bit of a, re, a rematch there. No Pog. Mads Pedersen is probably my favourite for um Bay at the weekend given how he's riding. Certainly strong outsider. And then Filippo Ganna as well. Filippo Ganna who has made Bay his big target of the first part of the the sorry, the his big target after Milan Sanremo. So he's certainly been focusing on it. And um, it'll be really interesting to see how he goes because he's a rider who should, in theory, be pretty good on the cobbles. Another outsider chaps I just mentioned, Niels Pollitt, I think, has been riding pretty well consistently this year. I've always quite
3: fancied him as a, as a Paris-Roubaix winner. Just on the weather, Daniel, at the moment we are a few days out. A bit of rain on Friday, but dry over the weekend. So dry and light winds. So not necessarily going to be... know the real hell of the north Uh, just on the goats as well i mean uh, les amis de paul Roubaix, the volunteers who do so much work to preserve the cobbles i think they were behind the the goat idea and the the reason was all the grass and moss and stuff that grows in between the cobbles had really grown up uh, Arenberg. It's very shaded there. It's more or less completely covered by a canopy of trees that goes over. So when it, when it's damp, it stays damp and uh, no vehicles drive over it. So that greenery doesn't just wear away. So the, the goats did the job there to keep the cobbles in as good condition. As possible. I mean, they're horrendous, but, you know, if they're wet and grassy and mossy, then they become really far too dangerous for the race. Uh, they do a lot of great work, uh, not just in keeping the cobbled sections in good nick for the race, but also ensuring that, you know, local authorities don't decide to tarmac over some of the famous sections. They've done a lot of work over the last, particularly the last, I don't think perhaps in the last 15 or 20 years, but certainly in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot more um, of a drive to kind of, change the character of those farm roads um francois probably knows a bit more about that than i do but they, they've really def- they've really defended the culture of, of of the race because well in the 60s as we know it became basically a just a a, a, a highway race from northeast of paris up to roubaix
2: can't touch most of the cobble sectors now because they've been listed as uh, heritage, monuments historiques. So, uh, well, they're, protect- they're basically protected by the Minister of Culture and you can't, you can't touch them. They're like, you know, the Eiffel Tower or something of the north. So, uh, yeah.
3: A bit of light nibbling from goats is absolutely fine, but no tarmac, please.
1: Just a very final thing before we conclude this part. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I'd messaged someone from UAE about the prospect of Tade Pogacar riding paris Bay and whether the door was still ajar. The response has just come in. The door in question has dodgy hinges. Should be fixed by Sunday. Make of that what you will. Oh, 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 excellent.
0: The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. So my definition of endurance is simply put doing something at a high level for an extended period of time. That's what the sport of cycling is based around, especially the type of cycling we do, which is all long distance. That's purely an endurance sport with an element of of, of speed in there. So endurance for for us as professional road cyclists is is everything. Fueling is key. It's the fundamental part of professional sport, professional endurance sport, which is what we do day in, day out. If you're not well fueled, if you're not well prepared, you might as well not be on the start line.
3: This is Luke Rowe of the INEOS Grenadiers team talking about the importance of fueling for endurance events like the classics, which mean six hours or more of intense work.
0: If you've got a car and you don't put petrol in it, it's not gonna go. Well, unless it's an electric car nowadays, but you know what I'm trying to say? Um, you don't fuel the fire. It's not going to burn. I've got a few of these, haven't I?
3: If you want to fuel your fire like the Ineos Grenadiers, go to scienceinsport.com for the full range of energy products that you need before, during, and after your ride. Well chaps, we're still
1: talking about paris it's turning into another marathon episode so we're going to be short and sweet here, now I set you chaps some homework, I told you to go away and think of one talking point, one thing that you're particularly looking forward to about Paris-Roubaix, Francois came back with David Gourdu bullying people at Tour of the Basque Country, uh, <laughs> shall I start? Shall I start? I'll give, give you a, a little bit more time, should you not have already come up with your big talking point. Um, my big talking point, Peter Sagan, someone who I famously said was never going to win Paris Roubaix, and he did win Paris Roubaix shortly thereafter. Now, um, we were talking about strikes, Francois. Peter Sagan writes for Total Energy. Um, I understand that 22% of Total Energie's staff in France is currently on strike. I don't know if that includes Peter Sagan, but you would be forgiven. For thinking it did, given the way he rode uh, the Tour of Flanders. I know he was caught up in one of those crashes, and but he did abandon and was pretty transparent. As he's been throughout the season so far, and it's a bit of a sad spectacle. We know this is going to be his last season riding the big road races, World Tour road races. Um you know there's been this air of kind of I've called it ennui in the last few years around Peter Sagan just this sort of loosening of his grip on or the loosening of his I suppose the, the kind of burning passion that he used to seem to bring to professional cycling um, to to his job. You know, he's given some interesting interviews in the last few days he gave one to our friends at Bici Pro the Italian website Enzo Vicenati in which he said you know, he was talking about how different things are from when he started riding, and he said the biggest difference has been made by Veloviewer um Velo viewer is something that's was created by another good friend of the podcast ben low and it's this application or website that all the teams now use to plot their strategy and it uses google street view and it allows direct sportifs to to give very detailed briefings to their riders with sort of post-it notes all over the course they can see exactly what the wind's going to be doing and so on and so forth and And Sagan said, you used to have to go, you know, the direct sportif used to stand up in the bus in the morning and he had a pen and paper and there used to be four or five points on the course that he would underline and tell his riders to be careful of or alert about and now there are a hundred or so and they're just constantly in your ear and he said there's too much stress, Um, so I thought that was interesting. I mean, one thing that I've definitely noticed over the last few years, this briefings and we're we're very aware of the briefings as journalists because we go around the buses and when the briefings happening you, you know because the doors of the bus are closed and everyone's sort of standing um, outside waiting standing around waiting and these briefings go on for a long time now they go on for 20, 30, 40 minutes in some case and consequently we're often left waiting to do interviews um, Another thing that was interesting that Sagan talked about was having been advised a few years ago to do yoga and then having started doing yoga and he felt that this was relaxing him and then he subsequently consulted another physio chiropractor or something along those lines and they told him no he shouldn't be doing this because he shouldn't be trying to relax he needed to be aggressive he needed to come in to bike races with you know all of his sort of synapses firing And Bernardino style, you know, ready for a fight, angling for a fight, and um, he said that this is just something that he doesn't really identify with anymore. This this need to to sort of go into a bike race as if one were going into battle. So let's see what kind of attitude and form he brings into the race uh, the weekend. I'm pretty pessimistic given what we've seen so far.
3: Lionel. Well, I—I I, well, the big story is whether Jumbo-Visma can save their spring after, you know, failing to win the Tour of Flanders. Terrible fourth place result. I mean, obviously, I, I am joking, but how will the Gilets Jaunes fare in uh, northeastern France? They've got four very, very strong riders, haven't they? Of course, Wout van Aert, backed up by Dylan van Baaler, the defending champion. Of course, uh, Christophe Laporte and Nathan Van Hooydonk. Uh, really, in terms of riders that could potentially win, they outnumber every other team. No other team has, you know, that depth know of
1: about, strength. Is Van Bala fit? Well, is he riding? I mean, he's right,
3: He's on the list. He's on the list. It was always well. The, the assumption is that he is going to be fit to race. I mean, he crashed in E three, wasn't it? Uh, that's a couple of weeks ago. Now, well, it will be by the time we get to Paierie Bay. So, yeah, I mean, they're in at the deep end, perhaps, for him if he's on the start line. But, nevertheless, even if he isn't, they've still got uh, more strength in depth than the other teams. They've got riders who can you know, if they were to get up the road, would cause considerable consternation behind. So they're going to be the team to beat, I think.
2: It seems obvious that Jumbo-Visma are the the, the, the big question mark. I mean, they, they had everything going for them. Uh, I mean, like, the you know, these trebles, uh, uh, Christophe Laporte being handed the gent victory by Wood Van Aert. I think Van Aert is, is is a big question mark uh, for me, and, and that's the right where I'll be... Watching for because I mean everybody was saying ah oh, what a, what a great gesture by, by Wood for Laporte and because obviously uh, it, it it was meant to be a reward ahead of uh, Flanders and 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 we, we saw it happen if Wood van Art doesn't win by Bay, uh, the the gesture he made towards Laporte in Gennevilllem will be seen as you know one of the most stupid gestures. Uh, I mean it was of course he was nice you know but once again, you don't have to be nice as we said. So So what is going to be with Van Art's motivation? Uh, is he going to ride Ruby for fun like Tade Pogacar might or his sense of revenge even stronger? Uh, than it was, uh, and and once again, what what will be the kind of confidence Jumbo Visma will have coming into Rubey with a better re- with a result in Flanders? We we could have expected the kind of Mape type of result with one, two, three, and uh, and you know because they've done that. Uh, Jumbo Visma saying, oh no, after you, oh no, you know, and 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 in the end, it's the car who decides who who, who wins it. One thing is for sure, I might be wrong, but I, I don't expect, you, you might have expected like two or three weeks ago, a, a, a Jumbo-Visma treble on the uh, Vélodrome de Roubaix. I think it's it's uh, more and more unlikely. Will one of them be even be on the podium? That's, 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 a yeah, for me, it's a big question mark, which raises another one, because we were talking about Mape. I was talking about Mape before. We've seen the wolf Pack of Quickstep, been totally inexistent uh, or really in trouble since the t- start of the season and maybe for, for you know a couple of seasons now in the classics what about them you know another big question mark
1: well chaps, come Sunday night we will be talking about the 40 goats on the Aranbow Forest or we will be talking about the goat Tadej Pogacar being the goat or on, on the fast track.
2: I knew you would, uh, <laughs> you would do this
1: one <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of the title of um, today's episode that was
3: the only reason I threw that in.
1: Anyway chaps, Lionel, we are back oh, Lionel, you want to say something? Well I was
3: just going to say I said what I'd look up this uh, issue about the 1949 Paris-Roubaix which had two winners, I was in fact correct, it was Andre Mahe and Sursa Coppi basically Mahe and a little group went off course Um, so there was this uh, dispute about who had actually won Uh, basically it didn't get ironed out until the November Uh, the the French Federation obviously wanted Mahe to win the Italian Federation wanted Coppi to win the UCI couldn't decide and in the end they had a hearing and and uh, decided on a dead heat between Mahé and Copy, And uh, an official apparently said, thank heavens there's another Paris-Roubaix in four months because the controversy had dragged on so long. Uh, there's a really good piece actually by Les Woodland who wrote about the 49 Paris-Roubaix in cycling's 50 craziest stories, which you can find on the bikeraceinfo.com website. Worth reading if you want to know exactly what happened that day.
1: Lionel, we're back on Sunday Evening, uh, where I'm going to I'm going to try to focus on the Gosh. bike racing. There's something else that's happening that's quite important as far as I'm concerned on Sunday afternoon.
3: It's your big weekend, isn't it? Because it's the Masters Golf as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. So we will be back on Sunday evening with Arrivee. The women's
1: um, Paralympic is also happening on Saturday. There's going to be an Arrivee after that. There is indeed. And we will hear from Francois at some point, I'm sure, in the next few weeks thank you Francois
4: thank you guys the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Fried, and Lionel Burney